Welcome to the Round Pegs Square Holes podcast, hosted by myself, Sebastian Bates, and Timothy Fair-Matthews. A podcast made by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. We're launching our podcast with a series of raw but real interviews with some of the world's leading business mentors, industry experts, and entrepreneurs with incredible stories. Our goal is to inspire, educate, and entertain. So if it's your first time joining us, make sure you go back to episode one and don't miss a thing as you listen to incredible insights from our speakers. This is the Round Pegs Square Holes podcast. Hello, guys, and welcome back to the Round Pegs Square Holes podcast. I'm here today with Matthew Benjamin, and we're going to be talking about pivoting towards sustainability. So Matthew's got an MBA in luxury management at the university, the International University of Monaco, and with over 10 years of working in bespoke menswear, his career started in London, and he's been working for the largest custom clothing company in the world, Tom James, eventually opening up an office here for them in Dubai, where actually I believe you you were the youngest employee to ever do that, uh, Matthew. I was, I was, yeah. (laughs) So we'll definitely be talking about that. Um, In 2017, Matthew started Benjamin Siggers, which is a bespoke menswear business with sustainability at its core. After a lot of research, especially during the lockdown, Matthew discovered that some major problems and challenges really were at the core of the school uniform industry. And so during this time, Matthew sought to solve these problems. And, you know, following his passion for sustainability, he created capes. And the purpose of capes is to produce the most sustainable school uniforms in the world. So Matthew's here today to tell us exactly what he's up to, to tell us how he's doing it, and also why he believes that every business should be looking towards sustainability as a priority. Matthew, awesome to have you here, mate. Welcome. Great, great intro, Seb. You've done this before. Done it a couple of times. Yeah, just just a few times. This is how I spent my lockdown, so... (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's it's awesome to have you here. You know, we, we've had many, many chats about sustainability um, yeah. and they've always been really, really interesting. So I, I couldn't think of anyone better uh, to bring onto the show to talk about this sort of stuff. And honestly, what you're doing right now with capes is going to be an absolute game changer. First of all, for schools in Dubai, uh, where I think it's really needed. Um, and then, you know, for the world, pretty much. And before we get into that, be great to, to for everyone to kind of get to know you like I have, you know, who is Matthew Benjamin and what, you know, where, where are you from? What's your background? Okay. Well, um, where am I from? So born in London, um, born and bred in London, uh, to Caribbean parents. So my dad is from Guyana, um, which is part of the Caribbean, but is actually in South America. So it's the only English speaking country in South America. It's just on, just on top of Brazil. Um, and then my mum, uh, she was born in the UK, but uh, lived in Jamaica for a while, and her parents are from Jamaica. Um, so yeah, I grew up in a in a sort of West Indian household, um, where I was sort of, you know, education was drummed into me, and and just hard, you know, about working hard, um, and. I feel like that that sort of gave me the the foundation to 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 sort of get to where I am now. Really, brilliant. So, so they kind of that kind of work ethic you feel really came from your parents, would you say? 
it came from my parents. Yeah, it came from my parents. Mm. It came from uh, my my grandmother. Um, so Granny Gibbons, she uh, moved over here. Well, when I say here to the UK, I don't know in the sixties or so. Um, and long story short, she'd gone back to Jamaica with the kids and had to work uh, a number of jobs to send them back one by one. Um, so sent my eldest or my mum's eldest sibling back and then her, uh, her, her older sister, and then she came back and then her younger sister came back and, um, and then my, my grand saved up enough to send herself back. Uh, so yeah, hard work is, is being ingrained mm. it's, it's in the family. So, um, you know, I was always told by my dad, I had to work that bit harder than everyone else. And mm. that was, that was something that stuck. So, so would you say, you know, for your parents, um, university and quite traditional education was, was seen as, was seen as something that you, they really wanted to kind of guide you towards? It was, it was, um, you know, my mum went to, uh, to college much later in her life. Um, so did my dad actually, in terms of like getting his degree, it was, it was again later in life. Um, I think for both of them, you know, particularly my dad, he, he really values education and, um, you know, growing up, you know, at that time, you know, particularly him coming to the UK, you know, and the, the sort of issues that he would have faced during that time, um, you know, education was really important um, in terms of giving yourself that, that, you know, that leg up, that opportunity to, to go a bit further. So they've always wanted to give myself and, and my brother, younger brother, more than they had. And mm -hmm. uh, certainly for that traditional education, you know, at that time was, was what we were steered towards. Okay, so so growing up in London, um, very globally aware family, international, um, and education seen as high priority. Where does university, international university in Monaco, come from? Um, you can blame my dad for that, really. So <laughs> I love um, it. Brilliant. Yeah. Well. So yeah. So what, what happened was, um, <laughs> I was at uni. Um, I was studying down in Southampton. Uh, and probably from like year two onwards, my dad was like, you need to go and do a master's. You need to go and do a mm. master's. Um, in year three of university, so at that time I was studying advertising. Um, and at the time wanted to, you know, potentially get into that field. Um, in year three, I really started to enjoy studying. Um, so that idea that my dad, you know, it, it, it sort of, you know, put in put into the universe about going to do a master's um, sounded a lot more appealing. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, prior to going to university, uh, this sort of gives you a bit of a, a insight into, in, into my dad. So prior to going to university, I took a gap year. Yeah. Um, and during that gap year, I worked at Royal Bank of Scotland um, doing a, a sort of temp role. Um, it, it was a great year, you know, like, mixing with guys who were older than me, which sort of showed me the ropes and um, you know, I earned money for the first time. And so I'd applied to uni, I'd got in, but I deferred it. And I remember he, he was so adamant that I should go to uni without taking a gap here because he felt that if I was gonna, if I started earning money, then I wouldn't want to go. 
Mm. And um, I remember he said, uh, if you don't go this year, I'm not going to, I'm not going to help you out at uni. I'm not going to give you any, any money at uni. And uh, I was like, okay, well, you know, that's your decision. But my decision is I'm going to take a gap year. Um, I went to uni, he still helped me out. But, um, you know, he, he just felt that if I started earning money, I wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to study, which, you know, goes back to his, you know, how important he felt education was. Yeah, um, yeah. So year three really started to enjoy studying. The idea of a master's um, was appealing. And I started looking into courses. All my sort of jobs that I'd done throughout, you know, summer holidays and whenever I could work were client facing type of roles. Mm. Um, my first job when I was 16 was, was, a, was a sales role. Um, selling printer cartridges oh, so really? <laughs> cold calling cold yeah. calling companies and just trying to sell them printer cartridges mm. uh, it was like one of the hardest but like most fun jobs i, I had um yeah. it also really like drummed home you know i saw so many people come and go that summer like probably like 40 people came in and out of that door mm. um, it and and some of the people working there were you know in their 40s 50s um and although it was fun at times you know it, i was I, I really didn't want to go back to working there or working anywhere like that again yeah uh, and and that for me sort of crystallized okay like, yeah i do need to make sure i study because you know at, at that time how i was brought up and what i was taught was that studying would you know lead to you getting you know a better job or whatever it would be or more opportunity um so Long story short, because of that sales role and the other customer client facing roles I had, I wanted to get into to selling something. And I thought, well, what could I sell that was really, really expensive? Because that would give me the most commission. You know, quite money, money motivated. So, you know, what is what what can you sell? You know, that's you know really high value. Super yachts. <laughs> really, super yachts. <laughs> So yacht, 25 meters and, and over, you know, we're talking like tens, 20, you know, mid, like some of them, are, you know, over a hundred million, but that was yeah. it, super yachts. So that then kind of led to, in Monaco, it was like the, the yachting capital of the world or the super yacht right. capital of the world. Um, and the course I went to study was a master's in luxury goods and services. Right. Um, so so that's what got me there so i remember going to my dad and saying i, I found a course yeah he was like, hey, you know what is it <laughs> i was like it's like you know it's a, it's a master's in luxury goods and services so like, okay well where is it it's in monaco <laughs> and I, 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 you know i he didn't expect that but yeah. by that stage it was like well you know he he told me to go into the masters yeah right and, you know it was his, his how, idea. How, how old were you, were you at this point i was i was uh uh, when did I graduate? Like 20, I was like 21, 22. Right, okay, yeah. I, know, I, was 20, I was 23 when I went. Okay, cool. Um, so, Pack your bags, you went to Monaco. Yeah. After, after, you, told, after you broke the news to your, your parents. Broke the news. <laughs> um, yeah, we all went over, had a, you know, had a look at the uni, all that type of stuff. And then, yeah, yeah I applied, I got in, we went over. Um, and then how I ended up doing an MBA was that there were two spaces, I think two people might have dropped out, but there were two spaces left on the MBA course. 
um, yeah. and they off they offered it to um, those that were doing the masters, and there was like, I mean, it would have been a different it would have been different to to how I probably would approached it now. Although I'm glad I did it, yeah. um, but I, I had enough work experience. Although it, it you know it was not necessarily the sort of work experience I would have had if I'd you know I'd gone in my late twenties or early thirties or now, but you know, as far as they were concerned, it was enough to let me do the MBA. So um, then I went back and I was like, dad, uh, mom, they've given me the opportunity to do the MBA. What do you think? And, you know, my parents were really supportive and, you know, said, yeah, do it. Um, so, so I did. Okay. Amazing. So, so you're studying luxury, um, was again, luxury goods and services uh, in, in the international university of Monaco. Um, yeah. And with the goal, really, yachts, super yachts, right? At what point did you super decide yachts. to change and start to go into sort of menswear and and um, you know custom clothing that sort of stuff? So um, when I first got to Monaco, I'd actually I'd done some work experience at a yacht brokerage firm, um, and and the plan throughout that year was you know to get into into that industry, mm. um, and you know some brokers. Um, do it through working on yachts and just being within the industry and then and getting in that way. Yeah. Um, I graduated 2009, which was, you know, financial crisis. Mm. Um, you know, apparently it was like the worst time to graduate ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I don't know, 2020, yeah, 2020 might be, might be on 20, the cast. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 2020 might surpass that now, but <laughs> at the time it was apparently the worst, worst time to graduate. Um, yeah. So, uh, so when I when I when I graduated, there wasn't exactly that many jobs going in the industry. Um, you know, whether that was working on 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 yachts or or, or just getting in. So, um, at that time, I still wanted to to work within the industry. Actually, I moved back to London and I got a job with a company called SuperYachts.com, which was um, a sort of yacht. So that again, sorry. I wonder what they sell. <laughs> yeah well no they mark they market yachts they market yachts. okay <laughs> so, um, so we were marketing yachts um so okay. it's a platform to market super yachts on sale or for charter um so my role was to get brokerage firms to list their yachts on our platform um right. so working in the industry was you know started to build up you know some some uh, a network within the industry um but it just felt for me that it was just moving too slowly. Um, yeah. It was a, it was a startup. Um, you'd probably been promised or sold a bit of a dream, um, and it and it just wasn't going you know as fast as 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 um, as we thought it would be. Um, yeah. I mean, it, interesting thing about it though, and and it's something that you know I'm so glad I I did it, and it I think kind of epitomizes me and what I'm, what I'm about. But when I went for that job, um, they said I was too green. They were looking for more experienced salespeople. Right. Um, so I said, all right, just give me a shot. Don't pay me anything. Mm. Um, just pay for me to get to work. I think I might've said like, and some money for lunch. Um, and uh, I, I think they, I think they might have given me an allowance for lunch. I would just make my sandwiches and just like you know keep that bit of money. Um, and uh, I basically worked for free for a month. And I said, look, if if after that month I haven't you know met expectations, then get rid of me. 
Um, mm. If not, then give me a job. What have you got to lose? And um, they decided to give me the job or give me the shot. And after that month, I was selling the most. So, um, wow. so they offered me the job. Yeah, um, I, I, but, love, I love that. You, you basically sold them on the sales job, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, it's one of the things we've been talking a lot and after next recently is um is giving value before the sale, right? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what you did. You know, try 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 me for a month, low risk, yeah, and see what you think. Yeah. And at the end of it, they were like, right, good, we'll hire you. You know, it's, yeah, it's exactly. I wonder if the, that again that that stems from having a good work ethic, mm-hmm. and which was drawn in, into you from a young age. I wonder if. Yeah that is still a very prevalent mindset with young people now when they're seeking their first job. Do you think they, you know, are still likely to work for free, work for nothing? I, th- I um, think it's changed a little bit. I don't think that's as likely to happen. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be unfair to, to young people because there's definitely, you know, some out there that would do it and probably are sure. doing it now. Mm. Um, particularly, I mean, there's some industries where you, you kind of have to, you know, you say, you get into, I don't know, like a PR or um, some of the creative, you know, fields of fashion even, you know, you, yeah. you could be doing internships, you know, so to speak, or work placements for nothing for, for quite a while as you try and get into those industries. So I, I think there's definitely young people out there now that, that would do the same thing. Yeah. Um, I think it's. A, I don't think it's to do with your your, your age, or if you're young now or you're young then. But with young people, I think I don't think it's to do with um, your age. I think it's just to do with that that upbringing, yeah, um, and, and your work ethic. You know, if, yeah. I'm sure there are young people that would do it, and 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 I'm sure there aren't. But I think the challenge now that young people face is that I think it's come with that whole social media generation is this like instant gratification. Yeah. Um, you know the, the the apps that we have and the, the getting those likes and swiping left or swiping right and you know that instant gratification you know and and with that i think you maybe you do have less people who are willing to put in that time for nothing yeah. because you know they they just want it all now um you know that that being like that being said kind of leads me on to how i then got into to, to to men's tailoring yeah was you know eight months into um into working at superyachts.com i just felt it wasn't going at the speed that i wanted it to go um and and i kind of felt just at that age i was still young like early 20s you know approaching mid-20s that you know i i had a lot to learn i wanted to, to i wanted to work for a company where i could be you know trained um, and I wanted to work for a bigger company. Um, you know, that's always a difficulty. I feel when you're, you know, working at a startup or you, or you, you have a startup, and you're bringing on young people. You know, giving them that 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 training and that expertise. You know, mm. it's a lot harder compared to, you know, going to to a, an established company that has training programs in place and has the money to really invest in that. Um, yeah, definitely. I, I, one of the one of the really interesting pieces of advice I I once heard it was it was given to a friend of mine. Um, he was asking an entrepreneur, a very successful entrepreneur, what the the what he should do. He was sort of 18, 19 years old. What he should do if he wanted to basically learn how to run his own business and, and make a success out of it in the future. 
you know, should he start something now? Should he get a job, build up some funds, or should he go to go to university, get an education? Yeah. And the advice that was given was to look for a startup company and try and get a role working very, very close with the entrepreneur of that business. So you kind of see the raw reality of what it actually is and it means to to run a to run a startup, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that it sounds—I don't know how close you are working with the with the entrepreneur of that business, but it sounds like you've got a very raw insight into what it is to have a startup. Um, to an extent, I mean, we weren't. I mean, the the sort of one of the founders um, was working. You know, we're in a small office. He was, you know, right there working with us. But yeah. um, it wasn't as uh, you know as as you described, it wasn't as sort of, you know, we weren't really seeing the inner workings, I would say, of, of the yeah. startup. You know, it was, you know, working hard, getting on the phone, speaking to people. But yeah. I think my um, my view of a startup, and maybe this relates more to what, what you were saying, it is that, that the guy, the founder, is, is there getting his hands dirty. You know, he, he's, he's, he's on the phone, he's making calls, he's selling as well. He's almost showing you how it's, it's done in some respect. And ultimately, yeah. you know, as a business owner, you know, you want to at some point step away from that. Um, you know, you, 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 and, and look at the overall picture and, and the wider strategy. Yeah. But I think to begin with, like you, you've got to just be, you know, in there, in the trenches. In the trenches, um, yeah. And and I don't, I don't, I don't feel that experience I had really, really showed me that. So you started your own business roughly ten years later. Um. No, well, God, no. When? Did, yeah, yeah. No, sorry about about. I'm not skipping through your life. We're, we're going to yeah, go yeah, yeah. back to Tom James. I'm just curious. I'm just curious about the next chunk of it. Yeah, yeah. About um, about seven or eight years later. Okay, cool. So, so I'm just in, in a minute. I'm going to we're going to see where you kind of got the passion to start a business in the first place. But obviously, yeah. there was there was this massive chunk where you were working for Tom James, right? Yeah. Yeah. So tell, tell us a little bit about that. How did that start? And how how did, how did you get to a point from starting with Tom James and then yeah. launching an office for them in Dubai? I'd love to hear about that. Sure. So um, so that, I think, you know, the MBA has has a big part to play in that. You know, when yeah. I joined, joined them uh, in 2008, I think it was. Um, was it, no, 2010, sorry, I joined them. When I joined them, I still had that, that entrepreneurial hat on. You know that that MBA hat on. Yeah, you know, I graduated two thousand nine, so um, they didn't have an office in Dubai. And one of the things that they make you do when you join is write down a goals list. And I remember because I I saw this this piece of paper not too long ago, um, two thousand and seventeen. Sorry, two, um, September two thousand and ten. I, I I completed this list. I joined them in May two thousand and ten. Um, and the first thing on that list was to open an office in Dubai. Um, and I can't remember exactly why I wrote that down, but I just, I knew that there wasn't an office in Dubai. Um, you know, I wanted to, to spread my wings. I wanted to build something, my own vision. Um, and 
we had clients in Dubai that were using us in London because they didn't have an equivalent in terms of quality. So from that aspect, it just made sense. It, you know, it was, mm. a, it was the same type of clientele. Um, Dubai, you know, had all this promise and, you know, it was, it was recovering after you know, the financial crisis. Um, and yeah, I, I put a business plan together. Like it was, it was quite a small business plan compared to, to what I've done recently, but I put something together. I approached them with it. Um, you know, I remember people saying they're never going to let you go and do it. Like they're just, they're going to tell you that you will, but they'll never let you do it. Yeah. So on, so on. Um, and they set me targets, you know, and they just said, yeah. hit these targets, um, sales wise, hire someone, train them, get them to sell a certain amount. So we know that you can train somebody. Um, and then have a, a decent grasp of the financials and how the business works um, from a numbers perspective. And, and we'll give you the opportunity and you can go. And uh, I did all of those things and they lived up to their words. And, and uh, 2012, I moved out to, to Dubai to set up the office. Wow. Wow. So it, it's, it's almost like, you know, it's becoming quite clear now where that, enthusiasm for starting up a business came from because essentially you started a business for Tom James in Dubai and you experienced what you know everything that comes with starting a business you stuck your you stuck your neck out took all the risk um, and put your put your name on the line with Tom James to say look I'm going to start a business for you in or an office for you in in Dubai and they, and they gave you the tools and the mentorship to pull it off right yeah yeah so I mean you know I wouldn't say you know that age in particular I was what 26 when I moved out Really? Um, you know, I was just excited, right? It wasn't yeah. like I didn't feel I was putting my neck on the line. You know, I right. was really enthusiastic about it. I knew it was going to do well. I was just ready to go. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't investing any of my money. The, com mm. the company were, were opening the office. You know, I was there to set it up, run it, hire people, grow, grow, grow a team. But I didn't feel, you know, any sort of pressure, you know, in that respect. I wasn't taking on investors money or, or or putting my own money into it or anything like that so from that you aspect saw, you saw the process of what it takes to start a business by by going through that yourself right yeah to, the, the process of setting up something in dubai yeah um you know the process i feel was you know when we i should be sure later we'll talk about benjamin Seagers. that process was, mm -hmm. was was different you know in terms of being you know it was my business but yeah. I, I was able as an entrepreneur to, to see, you know, get some, you know, good experience of, of how it worked in terms of setting up and, and building something from scratch, you know, right. building a, a, you know, an office from zero sales, you know, and getting it up to, it was just, just under a million, like 990 something thousand dollars in sales. Amazing. Brilliant. Wow. So, so how long, how long were you working in Tom James, Tom James before you, st you moved to Dubai to set up the business in 2012? So two and a half years. Two and a half years. It's pretty good going, isn't it? To 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 get an interview, leave Monaco, get an interview with these guys, and write down a list of goals. One of them being expanding the business to to Dubai. Two and a half years later, setting up a business there. Yeah, pretty cool. So then, uh, roughly about five years later, after running this business in Dubai and really um, getting stuck in in that department, you then set up Benjamin Siggers. What yeah. drew you into setting up your first business then? Um, in Dubai in 2017? Um, I mean, so I, I always wanted to, you know, I always knew I would set my own business up. I always wanted mm -hmm. to. Um, there, you know, I, in terms of 
you know, working at a really big company, you know, the largest custom clothing company in the world, there's a certain level of pride that comes with that. Um, yeah. You know, working for the biggest. I think as I found out more about the industry, more about the manufacturing processes, more about the, the impact that fashion has um, on the planet, mm. and then kind of realized actually I was working for one of the most unsustainable companies. Um, right in the world in terms of in terms of clothing there's, there's going to be a lot of people watching this either live now or, or listening to the to the round peg scars podcast who maybe don't have you know the the level of understanding that you do in terms of what that lack of sustainability looks like yeah could you give us a, a really raw insight into um, examples or insights you've had into you know where where that really shows up so do you mean in terms of the business I was in or just 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 uh, generally speaking? I mean, in, in general, you you know, work, working within the industry for over 10 years, yeah. where, where have you seen that lack of sustainability impact lives and, and what does that look like? Um, so, I mean, the biggest impact in terms of the planet comes at the raw materials level. Um, so that's, for example, using uh, conventional cotton. So conventional cotton accounts for... 2.5% of arable land in the world, but um, uses 11% of fertilizers and 20, 26% of, of pesticides. It might be the opposite way around. Um, you know, it's it, cotton irrigation has been, uh, it's resulted in, for example, the Aral Sea, which you can look up, uh, used to be the fourth largest lake in the world. Now it barely exists. Um, the uh, polyester synthetics use virgin uh, use uh, use oil so virgin synthetics use use oil um you know which has has a massive footprint um so all of these fabrics have alternatives which you could use so let's say for example um or cotton instead of using conventional cotton uh, you could use organic cotton so another issue with cotton is that it uses so much water uh, so a typical cotton shirt takes 2,700 liters of water to make. Wow. Um, which, yeah, which, no, you know, you just think that's crazy. Making a shirt then, how does a, how does a shirt, a typical cotton shirt take 2,700 liters of water? So, um, so you've got to grow the cotton. Um, so with it being conventional cotton, you've got to use a lot of water to grow it. Yeah. Um, and then just throughout the process of actually, you know, turning that raw material into fabric, yeah. a lot of a lot of water is used, whether it's to, to wash the material, to soften the material in the finishing process, um, mm. just throughout the stages of, of making it. And then once you once you've once you've actually made it, then you've got, you know, the the sort of um, the, the footprint after. Um, after you've bought it in terms of, you know, washing it and, and stuff like that. Um, but just in terms of making it 2,700 litres of water. So Incredible. Uh, equivalent of like three years worth of drinking water for a person. Oh, um, so how, how does that compare to something like um, an organic, you know, an organic, organic cotton shirt? So um, without going into too much detail, because we could, you know, speak about like, the cotton processes for like half an hour, but <laughs> essentially... Because you've got fertilizers, pesticides, etc., on uh, conventional cotton, it destroys the integrity of the soil, and therefore no more water water is needed because the soil doesn't maintain the water that's in it to then feed the crops. 
right. uh, with organic cotton, um, one eighty percent of it is rain fed. Mm. Um, but then also because you haven't got the fertilizers and the pesticides that, that are needed in conventional cotton, the soil maintains more of its integrity, um, and therefore over a longer period of time, less water is used because right. it can actually hold that water and therefore feed the crops. Wow. Really, really interesting. We've got, we got a few uh, comments here. Uh, one of them is, why is cotton linen so expensive? Why is cotton and linen so expensive? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it, expen it depends on what you call expensive. And mm. I think with cotton and linen, you'll have different levels of it. Um, yeah. So, but you know, you, can, you just explained in my mind, organic cotton would be more expensive, right? Because it's, it's all to do with the profit margins of these companies, which are kind of exploiting um you know the, the situation to, to to increase that profits right um it depends on on the quality of the cotton so i mean like let's take for instance with benjamin Sigurds, we we would sell organic cotton custom shirts um and they're less than some of the well less than a lot of the, the conventional cotton shirts um, really but organic cotton accounts for such a small percent of cotton worldwide, yeah. less than 1%, that with conventional cotton, you have a lot more variation in terms of the qualities that, that, that you have. Um, so, again, depends yeah. on the quality, but it's not, you know, with, um, with cotton, and like for us, for example, we can go directly to the source um, and, and purchase it. Uh, and therefore not to not have to have all of these sort of middlemen uh, throughout the process, which increases increases the cost. Yeah, right. right. So uh, it's hard to answer that question. You know, it depends on how much you're spending. You know, linen could be cheap or it could be expensive. Um, which which I guess brings us into what Benjamin Siggers did, right? Because it, it, it was luxury menswear. Mm hmm. So you so tell us a little bit about what Benjamin Siggers was about. Um, we know it's about sustainability, but but what exactly yeah. were you selling, and and how does that how does that work? Um, right. So Tom James, uh, Benjamin Siggers. In terms of our business model, it, you know it's very similar. Um, you know what we do is we visit our clients in their homes and in their offices. You know a lot of the guys that we work with um, are busy. Uh, sort of high-flying guys. They don't have time to shop or necessarily like to shop. Um, and our service is essentially to, to bring it to them, make life easy for them, um, but, you know, provide them with high-quality clothing that, that, that fits. Um, so whether that be, you know, your suits or, or shirts or custom casual wear like polos and, and chinos. Okay, cool. So that was, it was a very bespoke service, you know, take it, taking luxury items, making it very personal. Um, yeah, it's... It, it is a very bespoke service. You know, a lot of guys have trouble finding clothing that fits them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's working around their diaries, um, uh, you know, working around their schedules, providing them with bespoke clothing that's, that's high quality. And then yeah. what, what, we, what was at the core of it was, okay, how can we make this sustainable, um, which is where the organic cotton comes in, um, where the um, – organic wool which we're, we're having made at the moment comes in um organic silk for ties so you know in terms of that product mix we're the only you know, bespoke menswear company that at least that we'd ever come across um that was able to offer a complete product mix of organic fibers wow so so give us an example where do you get your wool from for instance 
so wool, organic wool, Argentina. Okay, wow. So uh, the Patagonia region of Argentina. Uh, so not this summer, the summer, uh, the summer last year, we uh, we went out to Patagonia. You know, stayed like stayed on some sheep farms. Um, you know, even did some herding. Really? Uh, yeah, like saw a lot of shoot. You know, saw the shearings, and this went through the whole process because yeah. even even for me, you know, I've been in the industry, you know, quite a while. Um, you know, there there were things that 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 I learned that I, you know I had sort of no idea about in terms of the actual production process yeah. that goes into to making wool, and yeah. um, you know I feel that if you know, this is where there's an education piece and that kind of like comes on to, to what we want to do at CAPES is that, you know, if we were more educated on how these things are made, then I believe you would have a lot more respect, you know, for the things that we wear and the things that we buy. Because right. the amount of steps, the process that it goes through just to make wool into, into actual fabric which then makes your jumper or, or whatever, whatever it may be, or, or, or your suit. It, yes, so there's so many steps to it. There's so many steps. There's so much that goes into it. So many people, um, and um, yeah, to see it all, you know, the, the steps from sheep, you know, to, to shearing, and then from shearing to the actual processing, like both both sides, there's so many steps to it. Um, I guess it's the same, you know, for food, really. Human beings nowadays are so detached from the food we eat, from what we put into our bodies, but we're also so detached from the clothes we wear and what we what we put on ourselves, right? We're just so yeah. detached. From yeah, 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 exactly. I think we've become disconnected to it. That, mm -hmm. that, you know, so, someone somewhere had to make that. Um, yeah. And I think with food, we're a bit, we're more connected to that. I think there's that, yeah. there's, the education's been there, the TV shows are there, you know, your, your Netflix shows. Um, you know, we, I think there's understanding about, or at least more of an understanding about, you know, what we put into our bodies. But yeah. there is a real lack of understanding about what we put on, on our bodies. Um, yeah. And our skin is our largest organs. Um, what we put on our bodies is absorbed into our skin, into our bodies, sorry. What we put on our skin is in, absorbed into our bodies. And, yeah. and, and there's, there's a lack of understanding, you know, in that respect as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, that, that was one of the things you, you spoke to me about when it came to capes, which which we'll go into in a minute, which which worried you and concerned you quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so Benjamin Siggers, it's been running for for several years, and it's it's quite legitimately one of the one of the um, one of almost um, what would you say in terms of organic um, luxury menswear, probably one of the only in the Middle East, right? Yeah, it's. Well, we've been going for for three years, just over three years now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is. There, there, I, I don't know. I've never heard of anywhere else. You know, for, for formal menswear, bespoke menswear. Yeah. You know, now there are brands that are, are popping up in terms of the casual side of things. Okay. A bit of a movement towards that. There's definitely a movement. We're yeah, we're in the sustainable revolution. There's there's definitely a movement towards it. We have to go that way if we want to save the planet. Um, yeah reduce emissions mm. um it, it really does need to go the other way but we're, there's a long there's a long way to go yeah right so so, so you're in this position you've been running benjamin Siggers for a while it's doing really well um it's very unique it's, it's got it's got a strong niche yeah. then a lot happens and a lot of a lot of the conversations we have on this podcast is we you know we're pretty raw we dive we dive into the the, the pain that small businesses went through in yeah. the lockdown 
you know, right, right to the right to the core of what they're actually facing on a day to day basis. And for you, how did COVID and the lockdown impact Benjamin Siggers? Massively, massively. Um, you know, we lost off. Um, I mean, we're ninety eight percent down in six months. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just it's it completely, you know, obliterated sales. Yeah. You know, for a business that visits people in their offices, um, no one's working. In, no one's in the offices. No offices. Um, no visits. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, so I mean, how? Okay, so this is how it started. So we make clothing um, in Italy, and uh, we have an entry level which we do in China. Yeah. Um, China Two that weren't affected right? at all. Yeah, exactly. Right <laughs> during right. the global pandemic, right? Yeah, Chi China happens. To be honest, they recovered really quickly in terms of manufacturing. Like they just got back on the horse. Um, and then Italy happened. Italy is where our shirts are made, our ties are made, our um, hangers are made, uh, where ninety percent of our suits, jackets, trousers are made. So then they got hit. So then that was first a disruption in terms of our, you know, supply chain. Um, but the major, the major disruption was sales. Um, you know, as I said, if, when you visit clients in their offices and they're not, they're not in their offices anymore, they're mm. not wearing suits, you know, suits is the big ticket, ticket item. Um, they're not wearing shirts. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's tough. And we, you know, unfortunately, it was something we were discussing just before this happened was about having an online presence. Yeah. Um, and we didn't have that. So, yeah, I mean, it couldn't, it couldn't have been, couldn't have been much worse, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I remember some of the some of the chats we were having at the time, and it was like you know we just hope it doesn't nothing nothing bad happens in Italy, and then you know because this this is where everything's being imported from, and then bang Italy, and I remember the day Italy closed the borders and stopped yeah. you know trading and all that sort of stuff, and it was just a bit of a nightmare. But it's 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 yeah. a very similar nightmare to a lot of people that we've spoken to, you know. And but what's what's quite interesting is you pivoted and I, and I and I use that word although that we've said in the past or you said to me it wasn't really a pivot because to you pivot means you're changing what you're doing mm. you know it, it's the, the values and the ethos of sustainability and why you're doing what you're doing in the first place are still there but yeah. I'm using the pivot because you you kind of use that energy and motivation that of yeah. what you're going through and poured yeah. it into a new venture you pivoted into a new venture yeah. which is where capes was born right exactly um I mean, this, it, it, you know, having this conversation kind of, you know, makes me think about these things and like going through that timeline, if you like, you know, from growing up and, you know, I think something we hadn't touched on, like I played a lot of cricket when I was younger. Mm. Uh, my dad was, my dad being from the West Indies, you know, he, he wanted us to play for the Windies. So um, cricket was, was another, cricket and education, the two things that were drummed into us. And, yeah. um, you know, having those experiences, cricket is a very a mental game. Um, mm. you know, and, you, and you've got to be mentally tough uh, to, you know, to prevail in it. Um, and like when this, you know, the whole COVID thing happened for me, I don't know, I, it just clicked into to what I would do most naturally. Mm. You know, how do I, how do I make the most out of this situation? Like, how do I, you know, how do I work on this? How do I work on myself? How do I come out of this better? Um, you know, and, and the blessing in disguise um, was that it gave me the time to work on um, work on capes because capes was a, a business idea I'd had for you know a year, but I just didn't have the time to to really you know sit down and plan it out and get suppliers and mm. you know do the the pitch deck and, and get investment and all of these things. I just didn't have the time to do it. 
Yeah. Um, so blessing in the sky is a silver lining was that it gave me the time to, you know, to, 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 to get to where I am now with it. Yeah. So, it, and it's interesting because it's, it's something which seems to me a much better business model with, which can make a much bigger impact in the world, which can scale much faster. Yeah. Um, which, which can really, you know, you know, put a rocket on your, on your vision for what you're going to do. Right. I mean, yeah. What before it was very bespoke. It was menswear. It was luxury goods. You, 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 you know, very, very much um, sustainability driven. But now it's how can you literally change the way the school uniform industry is is run? And yeah. um, and you know, at the moment, I believe it's it's sort of a school by school basis. Um, but the idea is to scale it up worldwide and yeah. to the point that you're producing the most sustainable school uniforms in the world, right? Yeah, this is about. Um you know, I don't, I don't say this lightly, but it is about trying to change the world. Um, and we already are making the most sustainable uniform in the world. We produce uniforms which are the most sustainable. You know, mm. you take a, a, a mm. shirt which is made out of organic cotton, um, the buttons are recycled ocean plastic, um, you know, all the thread is organic cotton, the label's organic cotton. Um, you know, all of our products are you know, as sustainable as they, as they can be. Um, so yeah, I don't say it lightly when I say the most sustainable uniforms in the world, but um, you know that that that's you know that's where we're at, and it's about now making that global. Um, but as you touched on, you know, with Benjamin Siggers, you know, that sustainability and my passion for sustainability has grown over the years. Um, but with Benjamin Siggers, when you're selling suits, um, which start at five thousand dirhams, um, you know, each uh you know on our average sale is double that you're only going to be able to cater to a very small you know portion of the market um so yes this has a much wider appeal mm. um you know kids are never going to stop growing so there's always going to be a need for for uniforms um but you know where we're really trying to make a difference and i sort of touched on this earlier is making kids not just kids, making everyone more connected to the people that make our, make the things that we wear and make the things that we buy and the places that they're made and the impacts that this has. Mm. Um, and, and, and kids, you know, again, going back, you know, we talked about, you know, would kids, um, you know, would young people do what I did when, when I, you know, just when I said I'd work for free for a month, um, you know, young people are way, way ahead of where I was um and where my peers were at that age when it comes to climate change yeah. you know striking from school like what we, we didn't i didn't even know what climate change was maybe it just wasn't spoken about yeah. but um you know the, the the thought of striking from school no no way never mm. never would have happened so you know they are um you know they're they're driving change in in, in a number of ways yeah. Um, they're well ahead but what what we want to be able to do with capes is ensure that or empower children to become change makers so that as they get older they're more conscious consumers they spend differently to, to how we've spent and they you know we, we we need that if we're gonna you know get out of this this uh climate crisis that we're in 100 percent. really really interesting to to, to step into a to a you know a global pandemic and you know pivot into creating a much bigger business 
with a much meaningful, much more meaningful and bigger impact. I think it's it's you know take my hat off to you. I think that's really amazing, and um, you know in in terms of in terms of speaking to schools about this, how are you how are you finding they are they are taking it when when you're approaching them with this? Obviously, it's a massive change for them to change you know their school uniforms and everything they're about. Um, so I mean, we've literally just sort of started. The website was launched yesterday. Really, um, so we're having you know we've had some preliminary chats you know with a few schools um and the feedback's been great so far yeah i mean ultimately you know ultimately if we are able to um you know from a school's perspective you know if we are able to provide uniforms that are more sustainable mm. um you know are high quality um you know competitively priced then you know it's kind of a no-brainer yeah. Um, so now it's just about getting that message out there to schools. Um, you know, another part of the service that we're offering is um, a resale service. So in that in that case, what we do is incentivize parents to return old uniforms once they've been outgrown and then uh, refurbish them and create a secondary market for them, which saves money for the parents, um, but also creates another revenue stream for, for schools as well. Um, Amazing. So you've got your new uniforms and then you've got your recycled uniforms. Um, but re yeah, really looking forward to, to getting it out there to, you know, to as many schools as possible, not just in Dubai, but worldwide. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, why, yeah. Why, 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 why wouldn't they? A hundred percent. I mean, if, if you're, you're speaking from a school perspective, who's running this as a business, right? If you're, you're speaking their, their language, when you're saying, look, we're going to give you something which, your parents will 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 want, prefer, and probably demand in the next five years. Yeah, you and we're going to be we're going to be the first to offer it in the area. We are we're going we're going to be giving it to you at the same rate that you're currently paying for whatever you're paying right now, which isn't as sustainable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely no brainer. So I've got no doubt that it's going to absolutely fly when you launch it. Um, yeah, and uh, sorry, yeah. I was just no. going to say tra transparency is another big part of it. Um, you know, from, from a school's perspective, um, I mean, we've seen recently in the UK, there was a scandal with Boohoo, who uh, yeah. was found, investigation found that um, they, were, they were breaking the Modern Slavery Act and that they were paying, or a factory um, that they outsourced to are paying uh, staff £3.50 an hour. Um, as a result, um, they've lost it's over a billion or wiped off in the value of the business. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's the risk, right? That's the risk if you are a school, for example, um, and you're you know, appealing to, to, to parents um, and children who are sustainably minded and you know, care about you know, the, the environment and social issues, is that without that level of transparency, currently... You know what is the, the the risk, the element of risk? Uh, how mm. do you know where your clothes are being made? Do you know where your clothes are being made? Mm. Um, how do you know you know that that is that is the case? Um, and uh, what is the risk if within that supply chain there are there are monsters that you know could come out? Yeah, um, right. So, so I think yeah, a few responsibility that that parents would want their schools to have. You know, sorry, say that again. It's, it's that level of responsibility that parents would want their schools to have. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we conducted some research recently um, and it was 90%, 87%, something like that, you know, it said they expected schools to lead on sustainability. So how, um, how many did you ask this to? So this was conducted by a research company, 250 parents um, of kids in the UAE that attended uh, private schools. And 90% said, what was that statement again? Um, that they expect schools to lead on issues of sustainability. It may have been 87%, don't quote me on, 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 on yeah. the 90 but um, To lead on issues of sustainability, which is really interesting because essentially they're, they're, they're teaching what's, what's going to be one of the most important values of the next decade. Yeah. And if they don't live true to those values themselves, it's, it, yeah, it's going exactly, to be yeah. inconsistency. It won't, it won't be as... It won't be incong you know, it'll be incongruent to their values. It will yes. it will really be really really make them stand out for the wrong reasons, won't it? Yeah. I mean it's about now, it's about walking walking the talk. Yeah. Um, and look, there's there's you know, schools aren't retailers. Schools are there to educate and to help, you know, um, help provide you know, help provide the world with the, the next change makers. Um, yeah. but that's where we come in, you know, from a retail side to take that hassle you know, away from them and, and, you know, to take care of the whole thing, to ensure that, the, you know, the factories have been visited and vetted and yeah. that it's transparent and that, you know, using technology and blockchain, that all of this can be um, proved. But then yeah. also um, using technology, being able to scan a QR code, for example, uh, and see the entire journey. Yeah. So schools can see it, parents can see it, the kids can see it. Um, Amazing. And again, ultimately, it just comes back to that. Okay, like you know, let's let's educate global citizens. So you know, when these kids get older, their mindset and their approach to things is you know is it, so much different, mm. better. Yeah, brilliant. I love that. Very aligned to that. Um, just just to finish up, uh, Matt, because I'm conscious we're about to go over. Um, mm. sustainability, obviously, massively passionate about. Um, it's going to be so key over the next decade, like we've like we've spoken about today. Yeah. What would your advice be to other businesses who are looking to become more sustainable? Um, so, you know, in terms of pivoting, you know, I think with you know COVID, uh, the pandemic, everything that's happened over the last what six months, you know, mm. people have, have lost a lot. You know, there will be businesses that that fold. There will be people that have lost jobs you know, and so on. Um, that also means there's going to be a lot of opportunity out there, you know, and I've already seen it where, you know, some people have started businesses and, and um, you know, uh, you know, looking for new roles and things like that. I think from a startup, startup perspective, I think you have to, you have to, if you're going to start something, we, you know, the world doesn't need another business that's just going to do what's already been done a bit better. Like we, the world does not need that. The planet doesn't need it. Um, what we need are businesses that are going to really push the sustainable agenda. So whatever it is that you're passionate about, whatever it is that you're, you know, about to launch or you know, got an idea for, I would just say, you know, look at it from a from a sustainability point of view. You know, and implement and try and implement that. Not even try, implement that. Um, because that's what the world's calling for. Though, you know, we need new business models that are going to, you know, get us out of this, you know, this hole that we've dug ourselves into. Um, mm. So, I don't, you know, pivoting is one thing, 
But I think you have to, you know, if you're building a business for the future, then you need to pivot with sustainability or pivot into sustainability. 100%. Brilliant. Ama amazing advice as well, mate. Um, what's the best place for you to get in contact with you or to learn more about Cape? So uh, to learn more about Capes, uh, capes.co. So Capes is spelled with a K, K-A-P-E-S dot C-O of the website. Um, look, if anyone wants to email me directly, um, if you're a school, if you're a parent, um, whoever it may be, if you're a brand, for example, because we're looking to partner with brands for our incentive programs, then email me directly at Matthew with two T's um, at capes.co. Um, and then just lastly, to tell you why it's called Capes, is that <laughs> yeah. heroes wear capes. So oh, this is all about, you know, um, and about uh, growing heroes. Um, and something that we're doing or committed to is that for every uniform that we make, or that we provide, we are committing to making a free uniform for a child in need in a developing country. Um, so again, it's about that, um, you know, teaching kids to be change makers, showing them they can be change makers, making them connected to communities around the world. Absolutely amazing, mate. Really, really, really inspiring story, incredible background, and um, amazing advice as well. Matthew, Sorry, man. thanks for having me. For coming on, mate. Really appreciate it. Pleasure, and uh, we'll catch up soon. Take care, mate. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to be the first to get access to our live interviews, then head over to f10x.com to apply to be a part of our online community.